Because the way I see it right now, we're not just signing up for a job, we're signing up for a life as a result of the job. Like you said, you know, it may be nine to five, check in at nine, leave at five. Maybe you're on an assembly line, maybe you're in a manufacturing plant, maybe you're just doing shift work. Fantastic, if that's what you signed up for. You know, maybe you're downtown and you're working 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if that's what you signed up for, fantastic. As long as it's clear as to what the life we're gonna live is as a result of the job, the life that we're signing up for as a result of the job, all of a sudden gives a lot more clarity around the expectations of what that environment has uh, for us. Hey everyone, it's Matt here for another episode of Thinking Inside the Box, the show where each week we'll tackle the most complex issues related to work and culture. If you're interested in checking out our other content, you can find us at bentohr.com, on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts by searching Thinking Inside the Box. This week, we're chatting with Eric Chimundi, global speaker and author of Rethink Work. Today, Eric and I are going to discuss the difference between building a team and building a community, a fascinating topic, no doubt. And we spend so much time these days talking about building teams. As somebody who spent the better part of 15 years in human resources, I can vouch for that. What we don't talk an awful lot about is building community. And in the context of organizations, I want to really break open with Eric what is the best practice and what does best actually mean in a rapidly changing environment. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Matt, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure, Eric. It's been great chatting before, and I'm looking forward to getting into this topic in particular. So before we do that, though, why don't you tell our audience a bit about who Eric is and what Eric's all about? Yeah, I mean, my mission is to change the way that we talk about work so we can have happiness derived from that thing we do more than anything else of the day. And of course, that is work. I mean, we're at the office or working more than we're spending time with our significant others or our families or our friends. Yet still, uh, in North America, according to Gallup, only 30% roughly of people are engaged at work. And what does engaged even mean? And, and I'm trying to break that down to say, how can we enjoy that thing that is work? How can we drive happiness from it? And how can we do what we do well while enjoying it at the same time? Let me ask you a question, Eric. Do you enjoy your work? Oh, man, I love it. It's so fun. Uh, Ten days ago, I was in Ottawa speaking to the Department of Justice, then came back for five minutes, went off to Calgary Environmental Services, then did a four-day, literally epic uh, conversation, a four-day with the epic community with uh, world-class speakers from, from all over North America. And uh, now I get to be here talking to you about some of the things that I learned, some of the things that I shared, and hopefully we can come up with some mutual discoveries while we're having our chat today. Yeah, I love that. So when you talk about engagement and you talk about loving your work, what does that mean for you? For me, as long as I'm learning, discovering, being challenged and um, uncomfortable, uh, and by uncomfortable, I mean out of routine. Uh, as soon as I settle into routine, I get a little bit stir crazy. And this, this career, this job has enabled me to live a life that is unpredictable, that is uncertain, that is unstable, that is unsecure. And that is a thrill every day because I choose it to be. Now, that's not best or great for 
anyone. I, I would say actually not many people really. I think last year I was on the road 140 or 150 days, 90 flights or something like that. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I think that when we have this conversation about engagement or best culture, it's important to know that while that might be a lifestyle that I've chosen and love, not many people like it. And so this idea of, of best culture, you know what, I, I do not subscribe to that at all. In fact, I was looking at Fortune top 100 places to work in America. And uh, number one right now is Hilton, hotel chain. Uh, number two is Salesforce. And first of all, I, I want to commend both of these organizations for creating great places to work because truly they have. Now, what I want to suggest is that somebody that works at Hilton wouldn't necessarily want to work at Salesforce. Somebody that, work at, that works at Salesforce wouldn't necessarily want to work at Hilton. So because I've got this, this career and this lifestyle that, that I've built, which, you know, Matt, you know, you know what it's like. You're on the road all the time speaking to incredible organizations and, and associations all over the place. I love it. And that's not to suggest that other people would too. And so this idea of culture and best culture and future of work and attracting and retaining talent is only right for the people that subscribe to that style of life. And the first challenge in this conversation, all 30 seconds into it that we are, is to understand first, if you've got a best place to work or something that you're really proud of, know that it's right for the people that are there and perhaps not for everyone. Um, so what is it that makes Hilton great? What is it that makes Salesforce great? Understand that team, understand that experience and, and sure, project it loud and proud, but know that it's not going to be for everyone who wants that similar experience at work. No, I totally agree. And I, I think as I think about my own path, you and I have had this conversation before offline. You know, I was very deliberate in making the decision to leave the corporate world to pursue my own business. And that was that came at some expenses. Um, and that right. came, uh, there was trade-off decisions. And I think if I could distill your great answer down to a couple of key points, I would say is first and foremost, it's having the self-awareness to know what's important to you at this stage of your life. Because mm -hmm. spoiler alert, it's going to change. Your priorities right. will shift. You know, I know Eric right now that you're, you're, you enjoy the 90 flights a year and you're enjoying being in, you know, 140 events throughout the course of, you know, the last year. That may not be the case uh, five years from now. You may actually prefer a more traditional stay at home type situation. I don't think so, but it's possible. Sure. Um, so I think it's having that self-awareness around what you want and then signaling that to the world in a way that brings those things to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Here, here's the thing too, you may have read, I think it was last week now, and uh, for, for, for the listeners, uh, you know, checking out uh, Jack Ma, uh, founder of Alibaba's comments too, he was applauding the 996 work week, which means, you know, you're working from 9am to 9pm, six days a week. And hey, you know, who are you and I to suggest what's good and bad? We've got our biases, we've got our lived and realized experiences, and we've got the life that we want to live as well. Depending on what our priorities are, maybe you want to make as much money as fast as possible, and that's where that's that's what the priority is, and that's fine. So you know, we look at culture, and it's very much a subjective conversation as to what's good and what's bad, and only until we figure out what's right for us. To your point, at the time that we're living in right now, uh, can we find that best experience for us? As we bring into an organizational context, you've already said this, but I just want to reiterate, because I think it's important for those listening who are in charge of the employment brand for their organizations, it's signaling that to the broader society to say, if you want to work for us and we're Hilton, this is what we're all about. And if you want to work for us Salesforce, this is what we're all about. So come join this team. This is what you're going to get. But to your point, 
Maybe you would rather work at Amazon or Walmart mm -hmm. or Disney or something else, but signaling what you are and what you all are about is going to attract what you want back. Well, let's be clear too that what we are is not a ping pong table, a keg, a dog in the office and an open office concept. It's the other 39 and a half hours a week that you're in there doing the work that you're paid to do with people that are doing something similar. And until we can understand what that experience is, actually, you know what, I'll take it bigger than that 39 and a half hours a week. Because the way I see it right now, we're not just signing up for a job, we're signing up for a life as a result of the job. Like you said, you know, it may be nine to five, check in at nine, leave at five. Maybe you're on an assembly line, maybe you're in a manufacturing plant, maybe you're just doing shift work. Fantastic, if that's what you signed up for. You know, maybe you're downtown and you're working 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if that's what you signed up for, fantastic. As long as it's clear as to what the life we're gonna live is as a result of the job, the life that we're signing up for as a result of the job, all of a sudden gives a lot more clarity around the expectations of what that environment has uh, for us. Yeah, I think that's bang on. And I think that you know, in the context of what you're saying, Eric, it sounds like we're getting into our first topic, which is the idea of community versus team. You're talking about building a community that extends mm -hmm. beyond the traditional 40-hour work week and linking yourself to an organization and more than just simply the tactical work. So I'd love for you to define for us, what is your, what's the difference between team and community as it pertains to what Eric thinks. Yeah, you know, this, this is a realization that hit me like a truck literally three days ago. So often we talk about building a team, building a powerhouse team. And, and I subscribe to that and in part still do. But when I was at this conference, it was this, this epic conference. That was what it was called. It was epic, but it was also called epic. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I realized is that the, the, the folks that were in the audience didn't, have careers in common they didn't have stage of life in common they didn't have much in common other than how they wanted to learn you know you can pick up a textbook you can go to podcasts you can go to big multinational conferences or you can go to a more intimate conference like this was and that's what they had in common and we, we came together as people and left the four-day event as a community and I thought that that was really interesting because a team in many cases has a, a similar goal or a similar skill set, whereas a community has each other's backs and has a deeper relationship that's ingrained in what they're doing. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, three years ago, the Philadelphia 76ers were dead last in the NBA. They had a record of 10 and 72. I'm going to repeat that, 10 and 72. They won 12% of their games. Unbelievable. Now, that was still a team. They're very much a basketball team. You can't argue that. They were just a low-performing, dysfunctional team that had a terrible record, worse than the NBA. What happened after is the coach was, the coach was in the dressing room. He was, watch, he, was, he was watching the players interact. And everyone was mad as he looked around the dressing room, you know, disgust on, on the faces, disappointment, frustration, anger. And then he saw two of the players that were chatting. One of the players was telling the other players about something he was really passionate about, something he was really interested in. And so he thought, you know what? These guys are building a relationship right now because they're starting to trust each other. They're starting to belong. There's a sense of camaraderie there. There's a sense of collaboration. And so what he did actually is, is he started putting in this policy, and, I, and policy is a little bit too strong, this practice where after practice or after a game when they were watching the tape or they were having a team meeting, each player over the next couple of months would give a 10-minute presentation on something that they were passionate about. So they would work with the marketing and comms team of the 76ers 
they would build a, a presentation deck so the players didn't actually have to, but they would be able to talk about something that they were interested in. So this informal presentation then enabled each player to share something with the rest of the team that they were more passionate about, something they were really excited about. Sure enough, two years later, the Philadelphia 76ers went 52 and 30. They were third in the East and made it to the second round of the playoffs. See, the difference is, is at three years ago, they were a team. Last year, they were a community because when they trusted each other off the court, they played better together on the court and they shifted from team to a community. Now, I'm not saying all communities win. I'm saying communities have each other's backs. They're there for each other when they need them. And there's a relationship that's built that's stronger than just a team might have. Last night, of course, the Philadelphia 76ers are now in the second round of the NBA. They beat the Toronto Raptors as much as I hate to say it. And they're a highly functioning community. And if we can take this practice and this principle to how we're attracting and retaining talent, then know that we're not just looking for the skills to do the job. They're looking for a community of people who can come together to get the job done and have each other's backs and build this sense of relationship and camaraderie along the way. How do we bottle this in the purpose of organization? So let's say, I, I hear what you're saying, Eric, the results speak for themselves in a basketball context. How do you bottle this up for an organization that's already spending you know, 50 hours a week at work. How do you, how do you encourage community building in an organization? I think you get like valued people. You know, you, you talk about purpose a lot. How can we align the purpose of these people so that we all are walking to the same beat of the drum? Now, now look, we can have purpose that spans across the organization, but a quote that hit me a couple of weeks ago really stood out. The quote was, we're all equal, but we're not all the same. It was an Adlerian theory quote right around right in this um, psychology space and while the mission and vision and values of the company run across the full organization to me that says we're all equal the experience of the team vary wildly meaning we're not all the same so i was speaking to the VPHR of uh, 23andMe, you know, the DNA company, his name his name's Mark Lipscomb. He's just a, a phenomenal guy in this space. And he said, look, if I tell the same story to my engineers as I do to my scientists, as I do to my social media managers, as I do to my business development people, how can I possibly hope to or expect to attract any of them? Sure, we're all, we all have the same mission and vision. We're all looking to accomplish the same goals. But until we actually talk about the experience on our teams, there's no way we could possibly align who we're trying to attract. He said, look, these people are 400 feet away from each other and living a wildly different life as a result of the job they're doing. So what we shifted to do is we started to talk about the experience that these people have and how that relates to the purpose, to the mission, vision, values of our organization. And all of a sudden now we've got people who are totally aligned on the experience that we're providing for them. Exactly. And you're looking at things through a completely different lens than you did before. That's right. And look, the, the, the day and the life of doesn't change. I mean, whatever the social media manager was doing is what they were doing. Whatever the engineer was doing is what they were doing before. Whatever the scientist is doing is what they were doing before. But the difference is how they started to articulate it when they're trying to attract talent. Look, I was talking to a, an executive uh, from Indeed, uh, you know, the job posting website just, just last week. And I asked him a question and I said, how many, how many words on average is, is your average job description? Can you guess? 300. 
yeah, 250 to 300. And I'm thinking, what? How can an individual, any level, entry level to executive, how can an individual possibly understand the life that they're signing up for in 300 words? How can one possibly understand the experience, what the day in the life is going to look like, what the, who they're going to be working with in 300 words? The biggest problem I think today is not that we have a talent war or a talent crisis. It's that we've got an information war or an information crisis. As soon as we can start to articulate what that experience is and bring it to life so that it's relatable, that it's understandable, that it's digestible, then maybe we can start to boost engagement from 30% to, I don't know, at least 60. Look, if three in 10 people are engaged at work, my suggestion would be that seven in 10 people don't know what they're signing up for. It's fair. And I think it speaks to some systemic issues in the HR profession and the recruitment profession. And I'll, I've had this chat before, Eric, uh, with people offline and perhaps even on this podcast before, which is that as a practitioner myself, I can tell you that I have written probably, I don't know, let's say it's called a hundred job postings in my career. I haven't spent any time as a specialist recruiter. If I had, I'd probably be in the thousands. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that when I first learned to write a job posting, Mm-hmm. We did not spend much time talking about awareness or brand or story. What we would talk about is making sure that the, that the um, uh, job posting was compliant, that sure. it had the right mention of equality on it, that mm-hmm. it was very accurate in terms of the tactical parts of the job so that when we, if, if in the future we should find ourselves in a legal situation, that we had a defensible position. It was sure. all defense oriented. It was how do you how do you put something out there that's transparent, but also not that transparent um, <laughs> and open, but kind of flexible um, because we 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 were taught that to mitigate the risk, you wanted to be as kind of vanilla as possible. And sure. if I was to give that exact same assignment to a marketing professional, they would come at it from a completely different perspective. So. Yeah. Risk would be important because, of course, they have to be compliant around various pricing legislation and things of that nature. But their bigger focus is how do I generate enough attention around this content so that as many people as possible interact with it? Right. It's a completely different mindset. It's offense versus defense. And if you believe that the more applicants and the more eyeballs, if you will, on a job posting will generate a better talent pool, which will generate a better person for the position – Clearly, offense is preferential to defense, but I can tell you that the majority of HR professionals and recruiters that are taught are taught to play defense. They're not taught to play offense. Right. Hey, everyone. It's Matt here. I hope you're enjoying the show. Before we continue, though, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Lena AI. The future of work is today, and faced with pressure to reduce costs while simultaneously enhancing their employee experiences, Coca-Cola Beverages Vietnam turned to Lena AI for their technology solution. And like a lot of organizations, Coca-Cola was inundated with employee queries. Everything from leave status requests, policy and payroll queries. And they wanted a technological solution that was not only scalable, but also provided a unique employee experience. So they deployed Lena AI's proprietary chatbot and integrated it with their workplace by Facebook module and saw immediate results. By communicating with employees in both Vietnamese and in English, they simultaneously reduced the volume of repetitive queries, 
wait times for employees for answers, and increased efficiencies within their HR organization. In fact, they were so encouraged by the result, they later integrated Lena AI's chatbot with success factors and their own in-house time and attendance program. And if that wasn't enough, my understanding is they're gonna roll out integrations even further, pairing Lena AI with their learning and development, onboarding, and pulse survey modules. Now, full disclosure, I do sit on Lena AI's advisory board, but that's because I am passionate about innovation and technology within the HR profession. I believe we need better tools in order to have success and to contribute more to our organizations. And because I sit on the board, we have received an exclusive discount. By using the code BENTO25 at purchase, you will receive 25% off of your transaction with Lena AI. So for more information, please log on to lena.ai and use the code BENTO25 to receive 25% off your purchase. And now, back to our show. And hey, look, I, I can appreciate everything you've said too, from the compliance piece to the accuracy piece to the defensive piece. Like All of that, I think, still needs to exist from a legality standpoint, but also from an accuracy of what the skills and requirements needed to do the job, but also the tactical things of what that's going to look like. But look, this isn't in many cases going to be the differentiator. I just looked, you know, I'm assuming you're in Vancouver, but I just looked at Vancouver uh, this yesterday and I did a quick little LinkedIn search. I said account manager Vancouver, you know, narrowed the, the geographic scope to Vancouver and just searched account manager. There are 44,000 account managers in Vancouver. And if I looked at the job posting for these account managers using the defensible criteria and, and tactics that we talked about, where's the differentiation in that? How can we possibly look to understand what is an account manager at a golf course going to do and how are they going to live versus the city of Vancouver versus Deloitte versus Shoppers Drug Mart versus Best Buy? I'm not saying these people are not skilled. They are. They're skilled. They're trained. They're professionals. They're agile. They want community, connection, sense of belonging. And maybe somebody wants to go for a three-day hike on the weekend. Maybe somebody wants to go to Paris. Maybe somebody wants to play nine holes after work. Or maybe somebody wants to go home and watch Netflix. My point is, is that depending on where these individuals are going to work, what that community actually looks like and what life they can live as a result of the job, they may be totally happy at one place and find the other totally toxic if we aren't proactive in putting it in your words, more on the offense about what that realized experience is going to be. Yeah, and I think you know, the point you're making and the point I'm making as well is it's not a binary conversation. It doesn't no, have to be either be. or. You can have both. Um, That's right. But it's an understanding that the world has changed dramatically um, and it's no longer good enough just to post something and then pray that the right person's going to find that job in a market where you have a th in the United States, as you mentioned, a thousand more open jobs and there are people that work them. Um, or sorry, a million, a million more. Yeah, this is real. <laughs> yeah, a million more than yeah. that's a, it's an issue. And if you want to get those spots filled, then right. you have an obligation to look at different mechanisms of doing that. And one way of doing that is ensuring that your engagement with that audience is going to drive more traffic and drive a greater awareness and build that culture people want to be part of. Yeah, well, let's, let's, you know, let's put this into a different context real quick. So you're looking for a two-bedroom apartment downtown Whereversville. Let's just keep with Vancouver for now just because uh, that's, you know, that's something we have in common. If I'm looking for a two-bedroom 
uh, condo in, in downtown Vancouver. Let's put price aside for a second, even though we've got our range, whatever that might be. If we're playing defense, you could say that it's got washer and dryer, it's got uh, heat, electricity, it's got <laughs> uh, running water, it's got walls that don't have cracks in it. You know, it's got the fundamentals. This today is what a job description is to me. Yes, it has the things that we need to function. Like if we don't talk about the floors, we don't talk about the color of the walls, we don't talk about the views, we don't talk about the square footage, we don't talk about what it's actually going to be like. What are the neighbors like? How many floors up? How close is the nearest grocery store? We don't actually talk about the things that make these apartments or these condos unique, much like we don't talk about what makes our teams or our jobs unique. This is just the base level. And I don't know about you, but if I'm ever looking for a new place to live, I'm checking out 15 or 20 of them. I'm not taking the first one that I see blindly having not stepped inside. Yet, so often, I see that, hey, this company, which, by the way, I love the logo. It's got a great brand reputation. They've got a really good culture. They made the top 50 places to work list, gave me an offer. So often, I see people diving in without actually knowing what they're signing up for. Now, look, signing up for a job and picking a place to live, I would actually find very comparable in terms of hours that we spend there. Yet the research and the time we put into understanding the place that we'll live is far greater in many cases than we will in finding that job. Exactly right. And for that reason, it just behooves both the organizations signaling what they're putting out in the market in terms of what they're all about and the candidate in terms of doing the additional research to figure out what they're signing up for. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the context of our conversation, Eric, you know, you mentioned that you've been recently to this epic conference that happened to be epic. Yeah. Um, what were some of the key learnings that you took away from that conference? Oh, I mean, I could tell you from a speaker's perspective, I could tell you from a business perspective, I could tell you from a relationship perspective, I could tell you from a personal development perspective. But um, one, of, one of the themes that uh, kept coming up was, was this idea of, of community and the importance of it. Through the business lens, the importance of referrals kept coming up. And this, it might sound so simple and so obvious, but so often we spend so much money on SEO or <laughs> LinkedIn ads or Facebook ads or something, trying to acquire new clients without doing the work that you and I have just been talking about, even of who our ideal client is. You know, we're not just looking for someone between 25 and 34 with X thousand dollars who is female, who, you know, these demographics I think we'll miss in many cases. If, if we can shift a lot of those efforts into understanding who our existing clients are, how we might be able to increase the scope of work, how might we be able to serve them better? How might we be able to give them a referral bonus or, or, or some sort of incentive to, to work with their their clients or their network so that we can continue to work with people they've vetted and, and, and relationships that we've already built is incredibly important. But the other piece that really stuck out is, is the importance of, of story. And uh, I don't want to be patronizing or condescending simply because I had this issue before, but a story isn't an anecdote or an example necessarily. If I said, you know, culture is really important. Take Best Buy, for example, here's a new policy they did. I, I used to think that that was a story. A story has a beginning, a middle, and end, a pain point, some sort of inflection or change, and then a result that happened as, 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 because of that change. If we can tell more stories that are more relatable on a deeper level for individuals, that's when we start to build trust and belonging faster. If we can do that with people that we're already working with or friends or, or relationships that we've already got, it's not so much a quantity game anymore. It's a quality game. 
and the idea of expanding our businesses or our sense of trust or, or belonging with people that we care about becomes greater when we're talking about the right things. And I think that that is story and that is connection and emotion and vulnerability, which, you know, I, I've always known was important, but to the level that, that was exposed or, or shown to me in the past week, a level that I hadn't yet appreciated. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's only going to take on more importance as, you know, there's the, the idea of story being effective, whether it's a marketing context or in a communications context or in a speaking context. As you mentioned, this is not new. Um, this has been out for quite some time in terms of it being a best practice. Uh, mm -hmm. And I can even tell you from personal experience that I have um, a keynote that I've delivered on multiple occasions around the world where I talk about the benefits of storytelling and analytics two seemingly very opposite ends of the spectrum. Here you have a whole bunch of numbers and data and, and, and you know, hard binary type figures, but where they actually come to life is when you st put story around them and connect them to purpose, connect them to people in a real meaningful, actionable, relatable way. Otherwise they just become numbers on a page. Um, right. And you know, I think story as society gets more comfortable in the context of telling story and in the context of people un understanding that it's okay to be vulnerable, I think you're going to see more of that. And I'm looking forward to a world where we can be more vulnerable and we can tell more stories as a means of getting better understanding and better connection. Yeah, I think you're, you're totally right. And I think that too, companies are starting to exemplify this. When we look at, uh, let's just use Gillette with their positive masculinity, you know, the best man can get commercial. I think we're redefining what it means to be strong uh, from like a, a macho, you know, physical strong to an emotionally strong, vulnerable and accepting of, of who we are too. I think when more companies, going back to you know, our original conversation, when more companies are strong, I mean in terms of how they stand, where they stand, what they accept and what they don't, that, that trickle down effect into the employees, into the communities and the teams that they, they build will become that much more clear as well. I mean, REI, great example. Um, Black Friday, as you know, the biggest retail day of the year. REI, they said, hey, look, we, this is not how we live. So on Black Friday, we're gonna give everyone that works for us a paid vacation day to go get outside and do whatever it is they wanna do and all of our stores will be closed. That's tough. <laughs> that's tough from a bottom line standpoint. That's tough from a value standpoint. That's tough from an emotional like image standpoint too. And, and, and what happened? Everyone got a day off. Everyone got that much more connected to the brand and everyone knew that it was okay to believe in what you stand for and act on it too. You know, Ron Tite shared that example last week and I just, I really commend him for bringing that to the forefront because now, now we get to see it. Nike, another example with Colin Kaepernick incredibly bold move to make to show where they stand. They drew a, they drew a line in the sand and, and that's it. Now, now, they're, now their employees can align with that better too. But until we actually act on what we just talk about, how do we actually know what is lived rather than what is said? Now, when I look at the values of organizations, only 10% on average, only 10% of value statements are operationalized. I mean, you can't measure value statements in 90% of the cases. And if you can't measure it, then you can't really improve on it either. So I just think that when we start to be a little bit more tough on what we stand for and allow employees and allow our relationships and friendships to see who we really are, 
great things can come from it. You know, I totally agree with you, Eric. And I would just add one more piece, which is I think for a long time we were under this illusion that if we were non-committal about our positions, that we wouldn't alienate people. So people mm-hmm. wouldn't, if we just simply said, quote unquote, the sanitized corporate speak, that people would, would accept that. I think in some cases that may have been true. Mm-hmm. We're now entering into an era where consumers, employees, shareholders want to know where the organization stands on very specific and divisive issues. Mm-hmm. And it informs their purchases, it informs their energy, it informs their alignment. And for organizations simply to say, we are right down the middle, we don't take a position on this, is becoming increasingly less acceptable. And you mentioned the example of Nike. I know for a fact that Nike lost customers, lost shareholders, and lost employees in making that move. What that action also did, though, was it galvanized a group of people that were already aligned with them and may have brought them over more customers in a different area. So they've Mm -hmm. just simply said, this is the spot of the market that we're going to own are you with us or are you not with us? And I can appreciate that for people who are in brand marketing or executives or for people that are focused on public relations. That's a scary place because we've been traditionally taught, keep it right down the middle. Don't, you know, don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about social issues. Don't talk about these types of things, but it's a new era. You have to signal what you stand for. Um, Otherwise, you don't stand for anything. Well, yeah, I mean, well said. And did you know what their bottom line result of that campaign was for Nike financially? I don't know. It was a $6 billion injection to the company. That's not so bad. So look, I mean, you, when you try and be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to anyone. Uh, you know, I'll say that one more time. And I think companies fall victim to this. I think we fall victim to this too. When we try and be everything to everyone, you ultimately become nothing to anyone. And I think in Nike's case, with respect to this conversation, sometimes the things that we're not are what make us who we are. I see companies fall victim of, we're innovative, progressive, highly communicative, driven, motivated. Awesome, really great. Tell me somebody who's not. What I'm gonna know is what are you not? We're not the organization that works past five o'clock. We believe in work-life balance or work-life separation, and this is what we stand for. You won't be working more than 40 hours a week. Okay, great, I can align with that. Or not. And if I don't, hey, guess what? I'm not going to apply. And that's fine too. But when we really draw that line in the sand in terms of experience, in terms of beliefs, in terms of the team that we're building, then I think there's clarity on really how we shift from being a team to, to a community to sort of put a bow on, on the conversation. Yeah. So what I think you're saying in a nutshell is that by signaling your values beyond just the traditional tactical aspects of the work, you create that community, you define that publicly, and you build an environment of people around you that forms those tangible partnerships. Yeah, that's, that's just it. And those tangible partnerships, that community, that's, that is the differentiation right there. That is how we separate who we are from who we're not. And that's what allows us to be a great individual organization or team or group that we are. So Eric, what's up for you next? Uh, I mean, uh, life on the road, man, it's, uh, it's, it's great. I've got the next, uh, next week or so here for five or six events, uh, in May, I've got a half Ironman first week of June and, uh, then we're getting into the summer, but, um, maybe this is the first podcast that I'll, I'll make the public declaration, but book two is, is now in the works. Uh, I don't want to put a date on it now cause I want to be, make sure that, that I hit it, but know that, uh, the book two is in progress right now, and, and I'm really excited about the research, about the team that's behind it, 
and uh, really about the, the firepower that this one's going to have. I'm, I'm really excited for, for all things coming. I'm excited for you, Eric. I know how passionate you are about creating better workplaces globally. So I want to wish you well in, in that effort. And I want to thank you again for joining us today on the podcast. Hey, Matt. Uh, pleasure's all mine. And I'm looking forward to connecting again offline as well. Well, sadly, our time this week has come to an end. If you enjoyed this week's show, like, comment, and subscribe. It helps spread the value of our message further and faster. And if you're interested in checking out our other content, you can find us at bentohr.com, on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts by searching Thinking Inside the Box. Until next week, bye for now. At Bento HR, we enable your HR strategy with custom HR technology procurement, implementations, and integrations to liberate your team from administration, enhance their productivity and experience, to position them at the center of your organization's transformation, where they belong. With experience as an HR executive myself, I have a real appreciation of the challenges facing today's HR leaders. The world is changing. Your industry is being disrupted. Your organization is transforming. And all the while, you're trying to do more with less. You're being asked to simultaneously model fiscal restraint while the expectations of your departments are only increasing. At Bento HR, we can support you at every stage of your transformation, from architecting the strategy to developing and selling the business case internally. We support procurement, implementations, and ongoing sustainment. And we tie it all together with a deep knowledge of the HR profession. And over six decades of combined experiences from our founding team, who has worked in or supported large HR organizations across multiple industries, including, but not limited to, financial services, technology, retail, transportation, and healthcare. Check out Bento HR today to build your very own Bento box, which doubles as your business case for transformation. Leveraging recent research into the upside of digital automation inside organizations, and with your help in answering a few simple questions related to your organization, our Bento Builder will provide a directional business case for change. So log on to www.bentohr.com and build your Bento box today.